So our study this morning is uh, verses 18 through 22. But for the sake of context, let's pick up our reading in verse 1, and we'll read through verse 22. Matthew, writing his gospel, he says, verse 1, Now when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. Uh, they brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them, and set him on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? So the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Then Jesus went into the temple and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. Then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. And when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out to Jesus in the temple, saying, Hosanna, or save now, Hosanna to the son of David. You know, even the children recognized Jesus as the Messiah, the son of David. But the response of the religious leaders were they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouths of babes and nursing infants? You've perfected praise. Then he left them and went out of the city to Bethany and he lodged there. Verse 18. Now in the morning, as he returned to the city, he was hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it but leaves. And he said to it, let no fruit grow on you ever again. Immediately the fig tree withered away. And when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither away so soon? So Jesus answered and said to them, surely I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but also... If you say to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, it will be done. And whatever things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. Well, if you're visiting with us or if you're watching online, you're new to us, uh, we've been engaged in a study of the Gospel of Matthew, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. My prayer for us as a church is that it would always be considered a joy. Uh, and that it would be seen by us as a privilege. Every opportunity we have to turn to the Word of God, to read it, and to study it, and to allow it to impact our lives, 
the way God intends it to. And you know, uh, you know, I, I believe this morning, as I prayed earlier, I believe as we open the word of God, God wants us to be aware uh, that he's desiring to do a work deep in each one of our hearts. He's desiring to reveal to us you know, something that he wants to, us to know this morning, something that he's desiring to work in us through this passage of Scripture. Now, I do think it's very important to understand the context here. That's why we went back to uh, verse 1. We need to have that context firmly planted in our minds as we continue with our study. And we need the background in order to fully understand the significance of Jesus cursing the fig tree here. Jesus, on the Sunday prior to his crucifixion, made his way into Jerusalem. And it was a beautiful spring day. You know, Jesus, he rides the donkey over the crest of the Mount of Olives, making his way down the Kidron Valley and then back up the other side into Jerusalem. And we're told in each of the Gospels, but especially here in Matthew's Gospel, that there's this huge crowd of people uh, lining the roads. Some are going before him. Some are following after him. And, uh, you know, as he rode the donkey into the, uh, the little donkey's colt into the city of Jerusalem, they're, they're crying out, Hosanna, save now. You know, and then all of them began to cut down branches and lay them on the road. They all began to uh, lay clothes down on the road uh, for Jesus to ride that donkey on. And in, in essence, what they were doing, again, is they were rolling out the red carpet for Jesus Christ, right? And again, they're shouting and they're praising God. And it was just this atmosphere of excitement. Now, it's all spontaneous. This atmosphere of excitement, the, the triumphal entry, uh, even though Jesus made arrangements for the donkey to be there to make his way, what the people were doing, it was all spontaneous. And they're uh, singing these psalms spontaneously from the Old Testament, ascribing to Jesus the fact that he's the Messiah. They're calling him the Messiah by singing these songs that were messianic in nature. They were declaring Jesus to be the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And if you can picture this scene in your mind, you know, it's a scene of pure joy. It's complete excitement. And again, completely spontaneous. And what the triumphal entry was intended to communicate to the world and specifically to the Jewish people, is that Jesus was and is indisputably the promised Messiah that was prophesied uh, to come into the world, you know, as far back as the Garden of Eden. Now, in Luke's gospel, right, we have a little fuller account of the triumphal entry and what Jesus did after entering uh, Jerusalem. And you might want to turn to Luke's gospel. Keep your finger here in Matthew. Turn to Luke chapter 19. And um, Luke, he just adds another layer of detail for us as we get into this story. Luke 19, verse 41, 
If you, if you can't turn there quick enough, we're going to have it on the screen for you. But Luke 19, 41, we, we see it says, Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes, for days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. So the first detail that Luke gives us regarding Jesus is that despite all of this joy, despite all the excitement, all the singing that's going on, despite all the beauty surrounding Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, by the time Jesus enters into the city of Jerusalem, there's something about the city that just breaks his heart, right? It breaks his heart so deeply that he begins to weep over the city. Now, the Greek word in that passage used, uh, you know, translated wept in verse 41. It literally means to weep convulsively, right? It's a deep, uncontrollable sobbing. It's this body-shaking kind of weeping that Jesus is doing over the city of Jerusalem. And there's a twofold reason in that passage why Jesus was weeping. And, and we see it in verse 42 and verse 44, right? The first, they did not know uh, this their day, verse 42. And the second reason was they did not know the time of their visitation in verse 44. So what does Jesus mean when he, when he says that? Why is Jesus weeping the way he's weeping? You know, how can this incredibly joyous occasion, you know, turn on a dime, resulting in Jesus' broken heart and just weeping over the city? What's going on? Well, this is what's going on. On the day of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, Jesus fulfilled one of the most amazing prophecies, right, found in all of the Old Testament. And it was a prophecy of Daniel chapter 9, right? We talked about it a couple of weeks ago. Um, but Daniel 9.25 is when the angel of Gabriel declares to Daniel, know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks, or literally in the Hebrew it says seven sevens, and 62 sevens. The street shall be built again in the wall, even in troublesome times. And so what the angel Gabriel is saying to Daniel is one day there's going to be a decree given to restore and rebuild the city of Jerusalem, which at this time happens to be in ruins, right? And Gabriel goes on to declare to Daniel that when that decree is given until the coming of the Messiah, there's going to be seven sevens and then 62 sevens, okay? So we need to understand that when Gabriel, what he's talking about here is he's talking about years, right? Without going into too much detail, if I told you we lived in California for three and a half decades, you would understand that we lived there for 35 years. Or if I said, you know what, we're going to 
um, you know, we're going to go camping for a week. We're going to be gone for an entire week. You would understand that I, I'm saying that we're going to be gone for seven days. And so it's this kind of similar figure of speech, the way we speak, it's, that's what's being used here. So seven, right, used in this context by the angel Gabriel, to the Jewish mind, it's clear that he's speaking about years, right? So after the decree goes forth, there would be seven sevens or 49 years followed by 62 sevens or 434 years totaling 483 years until Messiah is revealed to the Jewish people. Now, this prophecy was given why Daniel was, you know, a captive in Babylon. He's serving the king of Babylon there. And the Babylonians, they didn't use a 365-day calendar like we use. They used a 360-day calendar. It was a lunar calendar. And again, you can read all of this. Uh, we talked about this a, a few weeks ago, but you can read all of, about this in Sir Robert Anderson's book, uh, The Coming Prince. But to boil it all down, 483 years times 360 days, you come up with 173,880 days, right? So the Lord is revealing to Daniel from the day that that decree is given, you know what? You can pull out the calendar on your iPhone and start counting, you know, from the time of that degree, 173,880 days. And that's the day the Messiah will present himself to the nation of Israel. So we ask ourselves, where in the Old Testament did a king issue an order to rebuild, right, and restore the city of Jerusalem? And more specifically, to rebuild the streets and the wall. Well, like we said a few weeks ago, we find that decree in Nehemiah 2, verses 1 through 8, right? We see there King Artaxerxes, he gives the order to Nehemiah to go rebuild uh, Jerusalem, but more specifically, to rebuild the walls, speaking of the outer defensive wall around uh, Jerusalem. And the Bible tells us in that passage, Nehemiah, that that decree went out on um, the first day of the month of Nisan in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign. And so we know through secular history that order was given on March 14th, 445 B.C. So March 14th, 445 B.C., 173,880 days, you come up with April 6, 32 A.D the very day that Jesus makes his triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem on Sunday, the day we call Palm Sunday. And God had given the nation of Israel the exact day the Messiah would reveal himself to the nation of Israel. And it's quite amazing. But overall, even though God had given them the exact day, the nation of Israel was completely ignorant of the time of their visitation. The common people, you know, they heard Jesus gladly. They were worshiping Jesus. They continued to worship him. You know, they were the ones that were there on the street. They were singing the praises and singing the psalms of Jesus. Jesus remained very popular among the common people. But the religious leaders, the very ones that should have been looking for the Messiah on that day to present himself, right, to the nation, their response to Jesus' triumphal entry 
into the city was indifference. To them, it was just kind of a ho-hum, business-as-usual kind of response. For the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sanhedrin, their response to the fulfillment of, of this particular prophecy, this amazing prophecy in Daniel, was actually open rejection of Jesus Christ, right? They demanded that Jesus silence the crowd, and they told him to tell the people to stop ascribing the Messianic Psalms to him and to stop the people from calling him the son of David. Again, that's a Messianic term, right? And Jesus said, listen, if I silence the crowd, the stones will begin to cry out these very psalms because prophecy will be fulfilled. And the religious leaders, they rejected Jesus as the Messiah and they rejected the, uh, the events that were uh, occurring because they were jealous of Jesus and his popularity, the Bible says. And as a result of all of this, now they're more determined than ever to destroy Jesus. Now just try to imagine, if you can, try to imagine being the religious leaders of Israel. You know, you're claiming to represent the God of the Bible, the God who created the heavens and the earth. You know, you're making the claims that you represent Jehovah, you represent Yahweh, right? And you claim to represent God before all of the people. At the same time, you know what? You're planning on killing the Messiah, the promised Messiah, promised in the word of God, right? You're planning on killing the very son of God. And that's exactly what these guys were planning on doing. The religious system that they had falsely established, right, by the twisting of the Old Testament scriptures, it's actually an affront to God at this time. Now, now here they are, having rejected the Messiah, having rejected the Savior sent from heaven, having rejected the Son of God only to plot his destruction. And their religious system, it's firing on all cylinders, man. It's just humming along, you know Talk about a disconnect between the religious system and what heaven is all about. You know, you talk about uh, a disconnect between what they're all about and what God's all about, and you see that the, the divide couldn't be any larger that the gulf is between these two. You know, they're about two completely different things. They're, they're headed in entirely different directions these two. And yet, out of their own willful ignorance, the religious system that they'd come up with didn't see anything wrong with what it was that they were doing, right? They rejected the Messiah, and now they're actively plotting his death. I mean, it's just astonishing to see how out of touch with reality these religious leaders are. You know, they thought it was all okay. You know, they didn't see a problem with any of it. Now, all of that is the background for the cursing of the fig tree in our passage, right? Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, it occurred on a Sunday. Now, he makes his return to Jerusalem on a Monday, and he curses the fig tree. It says in verse 17 that he left the city of Jerusalem after um, the triumphal entry. He went to Bethany to lodge there. 
Jesus didn't spend a night in Jerusalem during his final week, right? Each night he would go back to Bethany where he would stay with his friends, with Martha and Mary and Lazarus. And it says in verse 18, now in the morning as he returned to the city, he was hungry. So Jesus and his disciples, they get up early in the morning. They start to make their way back to Jerusalem. And we read that Jesus was hungry. You know, it may have been that, um, you know, they got up early. You know, Martha didn't have breakfast ready for them by the time that they set out. And so that's why Jesus is hungry. And verse 19 says, And seeing a fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it but leaves. So seeing this fig tree, Jesus approaches it, but it doesn't have any figs on it. It's all leaves and no fruit, right? And Mark tells us in his gospel that it wasn't the season for figs. You know, don't forget, you know, this is all happening during the spring. This is all happening in April, right? Figs are a summer fruit. But one of the funny things about figs, I I think it's the only fruit tree that does this, but it actually bears an early crop and a later crop. I mean, it, it actually produces figs before there are leaves present on the tree. And so since this tree had leaves, I mean, it was reasonable, it was natural to just assume that it probably also had figs on it. But you need, we need to understand this also. Jesus knows, right, that there's not going to be any figs on this tree. He knows. You know, the problem wasn't that the fig tree didn't have figs because it really wasn't supposed to have figs at that time. The problem is that it had leaves, but it didn't have any figs. And Jesus is going to use this fig tree to teach his disciples a lesson. And it's the same lesson he wants to teach us this morning, right? Jesus comes and he doesn't find anything on the tree. Again, this tree is all leaves, no fruit. It has an appearance, has an appearance of um, outward appearance of being a healthy fig tree, but it's barren of any fruit, right? And Jesus, in the hearing of, the, of his disciples, with them watching, he curses this fig tree, saying to it, let no fruit grow on you ever again. And Matthew says, immediately, the tree withered away. Now, admittedly, you know, there's some difficulty with this, this verse in the minds of some people. And the difficulty is what they do is they compare Mark's gospel. Mark's gospel indicates that it was the next day that the disciples saw the fig tree and that it was dried up by the roots, while Matthew here, he says that the fig tree immediately withered away. So often people who want to find fault with the Bible They'll point to this verse and they'll say, look, it's a clear contradiction. I mean, Matthew says immediately it withered away, you know, but Mark says it was the next day. See, you can't trust the Bible because it's full of errors. You know, how do you answer people that bring up those type of objections? You know, those, they point you to a scripture like this and they say it's a contradiction. Well, the answer is this. We need to remember Matthew's gospel is not a chronological Uh, order of events, right? The things didn't happen chronologically as Matthew is portraying them, right? Matthew writes his gospel 
in a logical order of events, arranged in topics and themes, right? So he does, uh, he writes it this way because, you know, he's writing to a Jewish audience. And he's showing them that Jesus is the promised Messiah. And his focus is on prophecies that were fulfilled by Jesus Christ. While Mark's gospel is more of a chronological account. Matthew is just conveying here to us, to his readers, that what Jesus did, it was a miraculous thing that he did, right? Trees don't wither, uh, they don't wither away either immediately or within, you know, a day, a few hours, right? So for a tree to wither away, dry up by the roots, that's something that takes some prolonged period of time to occur. So what Matthew is just showing us here is this is a miraculous event. It's to catch our attention. This is a miraculous event. In verse 20, Matthew says, and when his disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither away so soon? Now, the disciples were amazed that the fig tree uh, completely dried up and it withered away so quickly after Jesus cursed it. And it's, again, actually, it's a miraculous demonstration of Jesus's power to command nature, right? And the disciples are amazed by what they're seeing, right? Now, this is the meaning behind the miracle. And this miracle has a message, has a lesson attached to it. Throughout the entire Old Testament, the fig tree was frequently used to symbolize the nation of Israel. You know, the prophets Isaiah, Joel, Hosea, Micah, they frequently spoke of, of Israel as being a fig tree, right? So all leaves and no fruit was a perfect picture of the spiritual condition of Israel at this time in Jesus' day under the influence of the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Everything looked good on the outside. Everything, you know, in that religious system looked like it would be pleasing to God, but there was no fruit in it for God, right? So like the fig tree, Israel gave the appearance of having a great spiritual life outwardly, but when God looked at it closely, there was no fruit. You know, they looked like they would be filled with fruit. I mean, there were thousands, tens of thousands of of uh, priests and more rabbis in the nation at this time than ever before, right? Worship was occurring there continually, right? Incense were being burned. Animal sacrifices were being offered. Blood is flowing, but it was all leaves and no fruit. Just as the fig tree had everything it needed to be fruitful, it had this, you know, perfect Mediterranean climate, you know, extremely rich soil. You know, it had sunlight and all the nutrients, enough to bear uh, leaves, to bring forth leaves. You know, this tree should have had fruit on it also. And so in a similar way, Israel had everything it needed to be spiritually fruitful. I mean, they had everything they needed to recognize Jesus as the Messiah. They had his teachings. They had his miracles. They had prophecies pointing to everything, including the exact day that he would present himself as the Messiah. Everything necessary for the entire nation to rise up 
and make Jesus their king. Not at his second coming, but at his first coming 2,000 years ago. They should have been, uh, there should have been no unbelief at all in the nation of Israel at this time, least of all among the religious leaders. But when Jesus came, he came into a religious system and he uh, came uh, against religious leaders that rejected him outrightly, right? And plotted his death in order to protect and keep their religious system going. Now, something is very, very wrong with any religious system that sees a need or requires uh, the minimization or the rejection or the death of Jesus in order for that religious system to continue and to prosper, right? The lesson of the miracle is that Jesus strongly rejects any religious system that claims to represent him or claims to represent God the Father that produces nothing but leaves in the lives of people, right? One that doesn't produce fruit, you know, doesn't produce a healthy spiritual life in uh, a person. What Jesus is demonstrating here is that any system that raises up and claims to represent the God of the Bible, you know, that produces either no fruit or bad fruit, you know, that system is cursed by God and it's doomed uh, to die. In cursing the fig tree, Jesus is essentially saying, I'm not going to let uh, you fool anyone anymore, right? Uh, you give the appearance of life. You have all the leaves. And people are going to be coming to you looking for some type of fruit, but they're not going to find any, right? And what Jesus said to the fig tree, he's saying to, you know, he's saying to the religious system of Israel, and that is, I'm going to expose you for not being connected to God a religious system that's not properly representing God so that people don't waste another minute of their lives invested in that system, right? I think it's worth asking ourselves, you know, how did, how did uh, Jerusalem get to that place? How did they get to the place with all of their heritage, you know, with all of their history, you know, their background, what they, where they came from, the revelation of God that they had. How did they get to the place where they were all leaves and no fruit? And it's important for us to understand it because we can fall into the same trap. You know, we want to know how they got there so that we don't go there ourselves. I don't look at the scribes the Pharisees or the Sadducees as being something altogether different than myself. I mean, we all share similar characteristics, right? We're all descendants of Adam and Eve. We're all affected by the fall. We all have a bent towards sin, right? We're all basically the same. But they began to make some decisions that took them down the road to produce a religious system that was completely disconnected from God. While in their minds, they saw themselves as the only representatives of God in the world, 
right? So what are some of the reasons for this spiritually fruitless condition of Judaism and even of some religious systems of our time? You know, and I think that as we've studied the life and ministry, if we've we've gone through the, the Gospel of Matthew and looked at Jesus and his ministry up to this point, you know, I think that, that as we've looked at his interactions with the religious leaders, we can see a number of things that we can identify and learn from. So the first one is this kind of religious system that places a focus on, uh, you know, places the focus on the people of the religious system instead of on God, instead of on encouraging people to develop their own personal relationship with God, right? It would be like uh, you coming here to Calvary Chapel Truckee every week and for me spending the time that I have with you every week just talking about Calvary Chapel Truckee. You know, the things that make us so great. You know, uh, the things that make us better than everyone else out there. Then trying to work into your life, trying to manipulate you into becoming dependent upon Calvary Chapel Truckee so that your life is something other than based on just you and God, right? Trying to build a dependence on us as a church instead of just pointing you to God, you know? And our role is being here to help you grow in your relationship with God in any way that we can. Uh, That's a problem. Secondly, these kinds of religious systems begin to develop man-made traditions which, are, uh, which then compete for the attention of God's people, right? Attention that should always and only be given to God. It isn't long before these religious systems develop these man-made traditions in an attempt to control people, you know, in an attempt to keep people busy in order to keep people uh, from recognizing the fact that, hey, I've been in this system, I've been in this church for five or 10 years, and uh, you know, I still don't have a loving personal relationship with God. You know, one of the things you can do to keep people from coming to that realization is just by giving them all kinds of mindless, vain, religious activities to, to do. And that's exactly what the religious leaders of Jesus' day did. They devised all kinds of man-made traditions to keep people, uh, you know, busy, right? Uh, You know, the people just spent all of their time figuring out how they were going to keep these man-made traditions. They were consumed. Every waking hour was consumed with keeping these traditions. And as a result, they had no time left over for them to develop their relationship with God, right? Or even have time to consider, you know what? I'm in just as big of a mess, right? Right now in my life, I'm just as empty as I've ever been after all this time being in that system, right? So all the attention goes into the outward appearance rather than the condition of the heart. It's all about the leaves rather than the fruit. And that's a problem. Jesus, earlier in his ministry, when he spoke to the same religious leaders, Mark 7, verses 6 through 9, he said to them, 
Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Why? Because in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandment of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups, and many other such things you do. And he said to them, all too well you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. That's a problem. The third thing these kinds of religious systems do, they emphasize, um, you know, they place an emphasis on keeping those man-made traditions to the neglect of the teaching and learning of the whole counsel of God. Why would the whole nation, virtually the entire nation, certainly all the religious leaders, right, how could they be completely ignorant of Daniel's prophecy? Well, the only answer that makes any sense is that they were completely consumed with keeping these man-made traditions and rules, and that uh, kept them away from learning the Bible. They had no time left over to learn the Bible in a way that God intends for even the simplest of us as saints to know the Bible, right? They had no knowledge of the Bible because they were a religious system that didn't emphasize the scriptures, right? They didn't emphasize the scriptures over the man-made uh, activities of religious people, right? Jesus over and over again spoke to the religious leaders when they tried to trap him. And in the coming weeks, we're going to be looking at uh, the religious leaders coming to Jesus uh, repeatedly, trying to trap him and what uh, he has to say. But Jesus, he would respond to their attempts to trap them with saying, have you never read? Have you not read? Right? There were entire sections, large sections of the Bible that they had never read, much less knew anything about. And they claimed to be men of God representing the God of the Bible. That's a problem. The fourth thing, these kinds of religious systems will ultimately, uh, what they'll do is they'll ultimately make uh, their man-made traditions more important than obedience to God's word in the minds of God's people. And you see it happening even today, right? You go to Israel today and, and listen to what I'm saying. I'm not talking about all Jews, right? But you go to Israel today and the overwhelming majority of Jewish people elevate the traditions of the fathers and the rabbis and the teachings and interpretation of the rabbis even over the Old Testament scriptures themselves. They test God's word by the teaching of men rather than the other way around. And now again, I'm not talking about all Jews. Um, you know, uh, and, and they're not the only ones that do this either. You know, Mormons do this today. Mormonism, right, is an example for us today. We have the Bible, but that's not the only book that the Mormons claim allegiance to. They have the Book of Mormon. They have uh, the Pearl of Great Price. They have Doctrine and Covenants. And what they do is they test and interpret the Bible by these three books, right? Instead of handling the Word of God properly and testing these other three books by the known Word of God, right? It's a problem. 
The Bible is the yardstick that we measure everything by. And when you're dealing with God and God's word, you're to always test subsequent revelation with prior revelation because God can't lie. He'll never contradict himself. You never test with, you know, what's the, you never test um, the proven word of God with the so-called new or further revelation of God. It's just illogical. It doesn't make any sense to test the old by the new, right? It's foolishness, not to mention it's ungodly and unbiblical. Now, again, the Mormons, they're not the only ones that, that elevate, um, you know, other books, building a system that causes people to, de- to be dependent on these other books or, you know, books of their founder of their particular movement or denomination or religious system or elevating the teaching of a founder or of the leaders within that movement or a focus on, you know, the leader's sole interpretation of the scriptures. You know, the Mormons aren't the only ones that do this to the neglect of knowing the Bible, the proven word of God. All of these things are the hallmark of an aberrant religious system, and it's a problem. The fifth thing, very often in these kinds of religious systems, when there's some demand or some teaching within the word of God, you know, that the religious system, you know, they don't care for, what they do is they simply come up with an interpretation to explain away God's clear intent behind the command or demand, right? And the clear example which Jesus brought up to these religious leaders was the teaching of Corbin. And, you know, in those days, they didn't have Social Security or retirement plans. Your children were your Social Security, and I actually think it's probably a good idea because it would cause parents to... um, you know, pay better attention to how they raise their kids. And it would cause kids to think twice how they treat their aging parents, knowing that their kids are watching and learning how to treat their aged parents. Anyway, the law of Moses commanded that we're to honor our mother and father. You were to provide for them in their later years, you know, when they're needing to be fed or clothed. Much like they provided for us, you know, and took care of us when we were young. Well, in the mind of many Jews during this time, you know, they, they thought, hey, this could, you know, get pretty expensive for me. So what they did was they got a number uh, together, they got a group of Jews, they went to the religious leader, and they pleaded their case saying, this is going to be a serious drain on our finances, on our resources. You know, you guys got to come up with a way to get around this Uh, what Moses is teaching here, right? So the religious leaders, they put their heads together and they came up with this idea of Corbin, right? And the religious leaders began to teach, if you go into the temple and you declare that all you own is dedicated to God, and that's what Corbin means, dedicated, you know, then when your parents come to you asking for your assistance, you could say, you know, geez, mom and dad, you know what? Uh, I'd love for you guys to move in with us. I'd love to be able to provide for you. But unfortunately, you know, I'm really sorry, but everything that we own, you know, we've given it to God. We actually don't have anything to now help you out with, right? And that's how they got around this teaching, right? This clear teaching of the word of God. And it was a problem. The sixth thing, 
that, um, you know, these kinds of religious systems do. Typically, they demand a loyalty of people that should only uh, belong to God. When people begin to think more of the religious institution or more of the leaders of the institution or the people that are making decisions within that institution, instead of listening to what God has to say and obeying him alone, right? It's a problem. But they use this technique on people and it begins to cloud the thinking of people within the movement and it places an obstacle before God, making it harder for him to reach those people within that movement, within that religious system. When people aren't free to listen to God and to do what God is telling them to do, even if it's to leave the religious institution behind, you know, it's a serious problem that messes with the thinking of people within the movement and it holds them captive. You know, I remember a dear friend of ours years ago, you know, she's now with the Lord. She's gone on to be with the Lord now for some 10 years or so. But I remember when I first began teaching the Bible, we had a Bible study in a house and she shows up at this Bible study. You know, she attended the Bible study for about a year and then she dropped out. And what I do usually, typically, what I do is I'll, I'll give somebody a call or I'll text them, you know, and I'll tell them, hey, no pressure. You know, I mean, I just didn't see you at church. I didn't see you at Bible study uh, the other day. And I'm just kind of wondering, how you doing? Is everything okay? You know, but the Lord, in this particular case, the Lord made it very clear to me that I was not to call her. And after about a year, this lady, she shows up in our Bible study again. And I apologized to her, you know, for not calling her, not reaching out to her. You know, and I explained to her what God had impressed upon my heart. You know, and that's the reason why I didn't call her. And I'll never forget what she had to say. She told me that she was part of a, of a cult early on in her life. And they were very controlling. And had I called her, she would have never returned and would have known that Christianity and Calvary Chapel in particular was not the way to know God. You know what? People are free to come and go uh, from this church as they wish. You know, none of you are my sheep. You know, you're God's sheep. And, you know, God will move his sheep uh, around. So he'll bring them here to be fed for a while. And then, you know, when, when it's the right time, he'll move them on to another pasture to be fed. And it's all according to his will for your life. And you need to listen to him, right? Some people will leave the church. They'll say goodbye. Some people won't. And when someone comes and tells me that God is, you know, they feel God is leading them to attend another church, man, I always send them uh, out with my blessing. Yeah, I encourage them, you know, to follow God wherever he's leading. And, but only go where the Bible is being taught. That's the main criteria. Go where the Bible's being taught, plug into that church, be fed, grow there in that church, and look for opportunities to serve within the church because that's how we're going to mature. That's how we're going to be fruitful. You know what? I always send people on with their blessing. I never try to hold on to people, especially if the Holy Spirit is moving them on. You know, and that being said, though, I do, again, reach out to people if I don't see them in a while. I just, you know, want to know, 
hey, I don't, I don't want to see them fall through the cracks. I want to see how they're doing, right? I want people to know that, hey, they're missed. They're missed within the body. When you're not here, you're missed. Um, so, but, you know, all that to say this again, you know, people need to have a freedom to hear from God without being worried what everybody else is going to, you know, think, especially God's people, what they're going to think about what God's leading them to do. You know, what goes on between God and his people is between God and them alone. The seventh uh, thing, these kinds of religious systems, and, and you know what? I only have like 20 more to go, so just relax, okay? You'll be home for dinner. Just kidding. I only have two more. The seventh thing, these kinds of religious systems often use fear and intimidation to keep people in line. And one of the worst tactics, the worst way they'll do this is to use a person's salvation as a way to control them, right? You can only be saved through our church. And if you leave our church, you're going to lose your salvation. You know, some people will get so afraid when they meet the God of the Bible, when they place their faith in Jesus Christ, right, for salvation. They'll get so afraid that they won't tell other people at times. And you see this in John chapter 12, when the Pharisees put so much pressure on the people, if they confess their belief in Jesus as the Messiah, that they would be put out of the synagogue. Right? Even some Pharisees during this time, they were closet believers, you know, like Nicodemus, you know, closet believers not willing to confess Jesus openly for fear of being put out of the synagogue. And number eight, and this is my last point, as a nation of Israel largely turned over, what they did was they largely turned over their whole spiritual responsibility to the religious leaders of their day. These kind of religious systems won't be able to, wouldn't be able to get any followers, right? They wouldn't be able to dominate a large uh, segment of the population, even large segments of the world, if they didn't have willing accomplices among the uh, common people, right? It's not just these religious leaders that are to blame here, right? The common people are to blame, right? And the same attitude exists today. People will confess in regards to the religious system they're in. You know what? I just do what the priests tell me to do. And I know if I do what they tell me to do, then I'm okay with God, you know? They want the priesthood. They want the religious system, you know, that they're in to carry or to attempt to carry their personal relationship with God for them. And that's completely impossible. That's never going to happen, right? In a sense, they were seeking to outsource their relationship with God. And that's a problem, right? They failed to take the initiative to discover what God wants for them personally, allowing the religious institute or the leaders of the religious system to know what God wants for them. You know, they would rather have a personal relationship with their religious system instead of having a personal relationship with the God of the Bible. And that's a problem. And you know what? Religious systems are more than happy to have it that way because it keeps the money coming in. 
You know, it keeps the people showing up. And it's a way to maintain control and power over the people. And the religious systems that engage in these tactics, you know, they're happy to exploit those kinds of people who want someone else to care their relationship with God for them instead of that system saying, I don't want that position in your life. You know, there is a God and you need to develop the relationship, personal relationship with him that he has just waiting for you. That's the relationship that you want. You need to go to God yourself and seek him for what it is that he has for you. It's something that you'll never hear of these kinds of religious systems say. Jesus doesn't like religious systems, right, um, that attempt to be the go-between between him and the people. In fact, the Bible says that he hates it. Jesus wrote to the church in Ephesus, Revelation 2, 6. He said, but this I have against you, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate, right? The word Nicolaitan means to rule over the laity. It's the clergy ruling over the common people. It's a religious system that puts itself between God and the people as a mediator. And Jesus hates it, right? 1 Timothy 2.5 says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. You know, in response to the disciples' amazement that the fig tree miraculously withered so quickly, Mark, in his gospel, records Jesus initially saying, Jesus' initial response to them was half faith in God, Mark eleven twenty-two. This is Jesus' solution to avoid this kind of spiritual fruitlessness, right? Then in Matthew 21, 21, Jesus continues and said to the disciples, says to the disciples, Assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but you also say to this mountain, be removed and cast in the sea, and it will be done. And whatever things you ask in prayer, believing, you'll receive. The first step in achieving a spiritually fruitful life and avoiding fruitlessness is to have faith in God. That's the first step. Each one of us needs to have faith in God. It's by faith that fruit is born. It's by faith that obstacles are removed. Well, how do I do that? It all begins with this personal relationship with Jesus Christ as your Savior. And this is for believers and unbelievers alike. That's where it all begins. Each person that desires to live a fruitful life needs to come to the place where they agree with God's assessment of them, right, that they've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. They need to understand that it's their sin that separates them from the relationship with God that he wants to have with them. 